wanted to start off by recommending to you a resource that we have on the book table there. Uh, in light of the Bible study that we've been doing on the attributes of God during Sunday school, uh, I wanted to commend for your study and for your reading uh, Stephen Sharnock, uh, The Existence and Attributes of God, which is the finest work that has ever been produced on the subject, I believe, on the attributes of God. And uh, I wanted to read an excerpt just to kind of get your juices flowing and to hopefully get you to buy the book. Um, These are used books because they are no longer in print. And uh, this book is worth $100, uh, but there are different uh, prices for each book because I got them at different prices, but they're roughly $30 for uh, a massive 1,000-page tome. And don't be afraid of the size of the book. Uh, You can read it at your leisure, take your time. Uh, I have a friend who has read it twice, and after he reads this book, he says he literally just sobs like a baby uh, after digesting all that Sharnock has written here. Probably my favorite part of the book that I've read so far after, I don't know, I've I've probably read a few hundred pages out of this book. But uh, this is what Sharnock says about the holiness of God. His section on the holiness of God is unparalleled uh, to anything that has ever been written, I think, on the holiness of God. And he says here, quoting Job 4.18, The heavens are not pure in his sight, and the angels he charges with folly. This is what he says. He says, Though God has crowned the angels with an unspotted sanctity and placed them in a habitation of glory, yet as illustrious as they are, they have an unworthiness in their own nature to appear before the throne of so holy a God. Their holiness grows dim and pale in his presence. It is but a weak shadow of the divine purity whose light is so glorious that it makes them cover their faces out of weakness to behold him and cover their feet out of shame in themselves. They are not pure in his sight because though they love God, which is a principle of holiness as much as they can, yet not as much as he deserves. They love him with the, with the intensest degree according to their power, but not with the intensest degree according to God's own amiableness, what he is worth. For they cannot infinitely love God unless they were as infinite as God and had an understanding of his perfections that were equal with God and as immense as his own knowledge. God, having an infinite knowledge of himself, can only have an infinite love to himself and consequently an infinite holiness without any defect. That is Stephen Sharnock, and that is on the table for 30 bucks. Grab the credit card. Don't ask permission from your wife. Run to the bookstore as quickly as you can. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time and 1 Thessalonians. Heavenly Father, we come to you today with heavy hearts. When trials come into our lives and sickness and devastation and tragedy and, and all sorts of afflictions that we undergo and we're weighed down because of our love for our brethren, 
We think of our brother Jonathan and Amanda. We lift them up to you now. But as we think of them, Lord, we, we are given the grace to take your word a bit more serious today. Especially as we think about language such as that which we will look at here, language that has to do with the one another's of Scripture, language that has to do with the body of Christ. And it often takes trials like these to just really bring to mind how much we ought to truly love one another, even as you have given us command. So, Father, we pray that as we glory uh, in the in the truths of your word today, I pray that our hearts would be zealous to apply and to live out these rich truths for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are going to be looking at this section here in Thessalonians in two parts. I couldn't get past verse 3, so we're going to leave verse 4 and 5 for next week. Really, um, this section is really split up into two sections where uh, verses 4 and 5 are really going to be pertaining to or concerned with the subject of preaching, and that's what I want to look at next week, Lord willing. But this week, uh, the concern is the subject of one another, the, the subject of the fruit uh, that should evidence all of the life of God's elect. And so what I want to title these two sermons, and really we could even go further than this because verses 2 all the way down to verse 10 is one sentence or one long extended thought at least uh, in Paul's writing. Uh, but uh, really what we can title this is the fruit of election. Now, I'm not just jumping up and down on the subject of election because it is a pet doctrine of mine or something like that, but you find that very, very clearly in verse 4. Uh, verse 4 begins with a very important participle because it binds it to the thought that went prior to it. So he says here, knowing, well, knowing what? Well, in light of all these things that he is glorying in, he says, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice, or you can even translate that, his election of you. And so for Paul, he grounds and he really... He's rooting all of this in the doctrine of election and just the overarching reality that God has chosen them. And as a reality that God has chosen you, well, then certain evidence, certain fruits, certain manifestations should be true in light of that electing work. Uh, very practical too. I, I think uh, the, the beauty of this is that here we see that a very tough doctrine, a very deep and profound doctrine, a very controversial doctrine, the doctrine of election, here being fleshed out in very practical ways. Um, the very first thing that I would say is that as we think about the fruit of election, we're going to see that this fruit really produces, or we can say that election produces various things. And the first thing that I want to say is that election produces praise. And I take that from Paul's prayer in verse 2. We give thanks to God, which is his way of saying we glorify God, we praise God, we thank God. God. We pray to God because of all of X, Y, and Z, all of these things, all these evidences, all these manifestations, all these fruits, all of the things that issue forth out of election. And the first thing that he does is he praises, which is really amazing and really remarkable to see that 
Election is something that can be observed by others or at least be acknowledged by others. That's to say that we should be thankful for God's sovereign grace in our lives, the electing love of Jehovah in your life and in mine. Now, let's be clear that I I think there's two aspects to this uh, evidence or to the fruit of election in our lives. Number one, I would say that we should have... Uh, or we should be sure that none of us can be absolutely infallibly or in infinitely certain, I guess we can say. There's no infallible certainty of one another's election. In other words, I don't know that you are elect for sure. Uh, that is uh, that is my hope. That is my prayer. That's my general hope is that you are elect. But on an existential level, on a truly spiritual level, I do not see your heart and I do not see your soul. And therefore, I can only have a general confidence of your election. I believe believers can have a confidence of their own election because this is congruent with assurance of salvation. I think that we can know for certain that we are children of God. And if you are the child of God, then it is totally acceptable for you to speak of the certainty of your own elect status, okay? Uh, but at the same time, we also uh, have to acknowledge that, that we don't know for certain if those around us are elect. However, I think that we should use the doctrine of election well, the way that Paul does, just to bring general affirmation to the church, general affirmation to one another. And that's the way I think the doctrine of election should be used. It should be used for encouragement. I mean, think about it. Here, the Apostle Paul is not trying to stumble anybody. He's not trying to confuse anybody. He's not even trying to inject any controversy here. He's just saying that he praises God for the reality of election in your life. It should be comforting to us. And that's the way that he does that. And in his prayer, he is thankful for the election of all the people of God in the church uh, there in Thessalonica. Notice that this thanksgiving that he offers up here is both constant and comprehensive because he says, we give thanks to God always for you all. So this is something that Paul constantly did is he was constantly giving thanks to God for the people of God and he gave thanks for all of them, for all the people of God. That's because for the Apostle Paul, he had an understanding that everyone in the body of Christ matters. Everyone. Uh, he has a really extensive exposition of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where he really talks about the necessity of all the body parts of the body of Christ. He says, but now there are many members, but one body. This is a first Corinthians 12, 20. And he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And again, the head cannot say of the feet, I have no need of you. In other words, every member of the body is essential. Every member of the body matters. And that's the worldview that you need to adopt as well. I think sometimes in an act of sort of a, a, a sort of a pretentious humility, we might think, well, they matter, but I don't really matter. 
And you need to be very careful there because sometimes humility is where pride flourishes the most, if you know what I mean. Because it can be this sort of sense of false humility when really what you should be doing is adopting a view of yourself and of the importance of your involvement in the body of Christ. And you should really see the dignity of your role and the importance of your role in the body of Christ. Paul prayed for the entire body of Christ because everybody matters. Thanksgiving that uh, Paul offers up here shows us that true election blossomed into the fruit that became evident in the life of the church as with all churches. I guess we can say in one sense the Apostle Paul, by thanking God for choosing them, was just acknowledging that a true church exists in Thessalonica. And we should do the same. I mean, I think there should be a a gratefulness. And I am very grateful for all the true churches that exist everywhere. I try to cooperate with as many churches as possible. I have friends with churches that I probably would not attend. (laughs) I'm friends with pastors of churches who probably I would not join to be a member. Because our theology would just fight. But I affirm them in the faith. I would say, you know, uh, I love you to death, brother, but you're wrong on X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I I affirm that that, that a true church exists there, even if I can't personally get involved. I'm grateful for Arminian churches. Hold on to your seats, okay? But wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is adequately and accurately preached, you need not doubt that a church is there. Uh, So, therefore, you know, we need to be ecumenical in that sense. I know that's kind of a dangerous term, but you know what I mean. Um, You know, I came from Calvary Chapel, a church denomination that I would not go back to. But guess what? I am grateful that Calvary Chapel exists all over the missionary world. I'm grateful that the gospel that they're bringing is the gospel of Jesus Christ and that they have the true gospel. Maybe not, you know, fully consistent gospel, but they have the true gospel. And I'm glad at that. I just, I just want us to see Paul's passion for the existence of the church. I mean, think of Paul's own churches. I mean, these are not perfect churches, brothers and sisters. These are churches that are laden with problems and troubles, and they're deficient in their knowledge. I mean, 1 Corinthians, he says, some of you have no knowledge at all, and I say that to your shame. I mean, some of the, even the churches that Paul planted had an aversion to theology. Think about that. But he doesn't hesitate to acknowledge that they were a true church. So I think what Paul is doing here is he's following his own advice. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, he says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good reputation, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And I think what he's saying is that in the Thessalonian church, what is worthy of praise is the fruit of election that is manifested in their life as a true church. And so what are these fruits? Well, look with me to verse 3, because he says here that in the context of his prayers, he's constantly bearing in mind three things. Ready? Real deep theology here. Faith, love, and hope. Deep theology, right? That's exactly what it is. This is practical theology, but it's profound. These phrases, I tell you what, I, I underestimated these phrases. I thought, you know, I'll do verses 2 to 5. No, I can't get past verse 3. can't do it. I start really getting into these phrases, what they mean. It's like, you know, and out comes this exposition and this biblical theology of these phrases that is profound because it is, 
It is uh, extensive. It's not just a you know, these are, again, this is no sentimentality here. The Apostle Paul is not thinking, you know, in terms of some sort of trite little greeting, okay? The Apostle Paul means every word that he says. And he focuses on this triad of Christian graces. Faith, love, and hope. What does the Bible tell us? In uh, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us, faith, love, and hope abide in these three. Especially love. Uh, that is the great uh, Christian ethic of all. Let's look at these one by one. Number one, election produces faith. Election produces faith. You see, this is all a byproduct of the fact that they have been chosen by God. And as evidence that they have been chosen by God, that Election was demonstrable. It was tangible. It was manifested in their lives. And the very first thing that the Apostle Paul is thankful for is what he calls the work of faith. Now, this is really interesting because the Greek word work, ergos or ergon, is coupled here with pistis, which is faith, which is interesting in Paul because most of the time these two words are actually antithetical to each other. I mean, in the book of Romans, constantly works, uh, you know, faith, not works. Faith, not works, constantly opposing these two terms. And here, he unites them. He talks about the work of faith. And so, let me just say grammatically, so that you see what Paul was thinking, is that the genitive uh, case that he uses in each one of these phrases is what's known a genitive, a subjective genitive, which just simply means this, that when he speaks of the work of faith, what he's saying is that this is the work that flows out of faith. Okay, it's the opposite of an objective genitive, which, and I know you guys are all writing this because you don't ever want to forget the difference between a subjective and objective genitive. But this is how Paul wrote the letter, folks. Praise God. He gave us these grammatical constructions so that we understand the precise dynamic of the faith. And the dynamic here is that he's talking about the work that issues forth flows out of true, genuine faith. In a sense, this is no different than James when James talks about the fact that faith without works is dead. Paul is saying is that the Thessalonians had a faith that was not stagnant. It was not dead. It was not uh, stale. It was not sort of an inanimate object. No, no, no. Their faith was alive. It was thriving. It was flourishing and growing. It had evidence. It had activity. It was an active faith, a working faith. Faith is meant to be productive, and that speaks to our lives. How does faith, the faith that we claim, the faith that we profess, and the faith that we claim to possess ourselves, how does that issue forth in our lives? What are the kinds of things that it manifests itself in? Now, I also want you to notice that this phrase has no object. In other words, it doesn't say that he is thankful for the work of faith in preaching or in evangelism or in, you know, singing. Uh, he, it's no object. Why? Because he, mean, he purposefully leaves it generic. He leaves it open-ended so that we don't try to pigeonhole just one thing. No, no, no. It's the whole totality of the Christian life that really fits in there. It's not just one person. It's not just one gift. It's not just one manifestation of faith. It is the total Christian life as we bear fruit unto God. 
Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We should not be surprised, and this is really remarkable, as we think about the doctrine of election, we are on sovereignty territory, and therefore we should not be surprised that in conjunction with our faith is also our works. And that too is also owing to the sovereign hand of God, to the sovereign decree of God. Look at Ephesians 2.8. We know this verse. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. I'd say the whole enchilada. Faith, grace, salvation. It's all the gift of God. It's not owing to anything you and I can do. He says, not as a result of works, right? So that no one will boast. We know that. Now listen listen to this, this language here. For we are his workmanship. In other words, he is like the grand master architect and we are his product. We are the finished product. We are his workmanship. And guess what? We are created in Christ Jesus. That's the language of union with Christ. For what? For good works. And this is what I mean by the sovereignty of God in conjunction, not only with our faith, but also with our works. For, says, God prepared them beforehand that we would walk in them. Now, let your mind just ponder that. Usually we think, election, God chose me before the foundation of the world. Now I'm quoting Ephesians chapter 1, right? And He predestined me to adoption as sons and daughters. But we scarcely think of the deeds that follow that election. And here we're being told that these deeds, these good works, this fruit, this work of faith is also prepared beforehand by God. He ordained a certain amount of fruit and a certain amount of work for us to do. And so what do you do with that? You do it. You work it out. You walk in them, even if you don't know what they are yet. See, He not just ordained your salvation, your election, but He ordained you're going to be a missionary over here. (laughs) Right? And then you find out later, oh God, in His providence, He ordains all things. And little did I know, one day I would discover that God in His sovereignty ordained that I would be serving as a pastor, I would be serving as a worship leader, I'd be serving as a missionary, I'd get married and enter the ministry, or whatever it is. Or that the Lord would give me a huge ministry with four or five kids. That's a huge ministry. God ordains the works that we should walk in them. The next thing, though, is this. He says here, bearing in mind your work of faith, and the next one is your labor of love. Isn't that remarkable? Now, what's interesting here is that he switches the word from work, uh, ergos, to labor, kapas. He did that intentionally. The reason why is because the word kapos here is distinct from ergos. He could have said work of love as well. But he wants to emphasize a certain aspect or a certain nuance of the kind of labor he now has in mind. Because this word has in the definition of the word sort of this this idea of an activity that happens with much adversity. Um, For example, the great... Puritan, masterful Puritan exegete commentator, John Eady. And can I tell you, I am so blessed to be back in Paul. (laughs) And more than that, I'm so blessed to be in one of these letters. You know why? Because I get to use John Eady again in his commentary. He's, let me tell you why John Eady is really quickly, uh, why he's so important. John Eady is such an important uh, Puritan commentator because 
He is not like our present-day academic commentators. You know, these guys are amazing. They get into the Greek and the Hebrew and the exegesis. They give you all this background information, and you just look at It's like looking at a data manual, right? Now, John Eady was just as smart, if not smarter. He gives just as good exegetical details, but guess what he mingles in the midst of all of that exegesis? He mingles Puritan piety. It's unheard of today. You'd probably be fired from the faculty of some seminary if you dare, you know, show your heart in your commentary. Oy vey, what has happened? John Eady did not settle for one or the other. He wanted exegesis that was on fire. He didn't want just light, he wanted heat. And that's why I love him so much. So you'll hear me quote sporadically John Eady. He says this about this kind of labor of love. Because if you say to somebody, oh, don't worry about it. It was a labor of love. What are you saying? You're saying that you did this out of the bottom of your heart. Right? And it was something that just flowed out of the love that you have for someone. That is not what the Greek phrase means, though. That American Western euphemism is nothing like what Paul meant. What Paul means is something like this, that this love, according to Edie, is an earnest, toilsome service in which the whole heart is thrown in and travail of soul, often accompanied by self-denial and exhaustion. He says, this is the kind of love that glows for the spiritual well-being of others. And it's done through exhaustion. So it, it, it reinforces what all of us in here know to be true, then namely that is this, that Christian love is a difficult subject. That Christian love is difficult. True spirit-wrought love, the love of God, is not easy. Uh, it takes work. It's hard. It's, uh, we need to be intentional when we do this. But here's the reality. Turn with me to uh, the, the chapter 4 of this letter, 1 Thessalonians 4. Because what we're told is that as hard as it may be, as challenging as it may be, as much as we acknowledge, yeah, it's difficult and it's hard, this is where we get really serious about the love of God, at least the love of God that should dwell in our hearts for one another, is that it must be there, <laughs> It has to exist. You know why? Because according to Paul, it is, a, it is a byproduct of regeneration. Where's regeneration in this text? I'll show you. Beginning in verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, the Apostle Paul says, Now, as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. So it's the same thing that he's talking about in chapter 1. This is what he's talking about, their labor of love. The love for the brethren. You've no need for us to write to you, for you yourselves, and here's regeneration, folks. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. When the Bible uses the word taught by God, that really ultimately goes back to the new covenant. It goes back to Jeremiah that we will all be taught by God. Jesus speaks of being taught by God as God draws us to himself. To be taught by God means that you have heard the voice of God and that he has quickened your heart through regeneration and now certain ethical truths and certain ethical realities flow from the heart of the redeemed. So we are taught by God to do what? To love one another. I love the one another's of Scripture 
But when he says that, he says, indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. Watch this now. But we urge you, brethren, this is just getting back to the idea that the love of God is not stale. Just like faith, it is not stagnant. It's not, it's not sort of um, just uh, waning. It is not something that we can, it just, it's not just a natural byproduct of our lives. We got to work at it. It's a byproduct of regeneration, but we need to cultivate it as well. Because it doesn't come easy. That's why Paul says, I urge you. If something is automatic, you don't urge. But he says, I urge you to excel still more. More love. You know, as we think about the context of Thessalonians, particularly in chapter 1, verse 6, or chapter 2, verse 14, Clearly, this church was under distress. You hear that? This church was in trial. This church was being afflicted. This church was being persecuted. And in light of that, it really shows us how carnal our love is today. And some Christians need to be forced to love. Um, Calvin, however, says of the Thessalonian situation, he says their distress did not allow love to become inactive. That's right. In other words, despite their circumstances, they still needed to keep themselves in the love of God and to display that love to one another. Paul experienced the edification of this of this very thing. Look at uh, the third chapter of this letter, chapter 3, beginning of verse 6. You see that exact thing. He experienced their love. He was encouraged by their love. He says, but now Timothy has come to us from you. That is, you know, as Paul is in Corinth, and Timothy shows up from Thessalonica, from them, and he has brought us good news of your faith and love. There it is. And that you always think kindly of us. Watch this now, what this love looks like. Longing to see us. Just as we also long to see you. Some people don't do good in church. I know that. I know many of them. I know some in our church. It's not easy coming to church. You've got to deal with the whole, you know, loving thing. Uh, you know, people are just kind of more private, uh, more to themselves, maybe shy. Maybe they're socially awkward. They don't really like people all up in their grill. Uh, but guess what? We have to be careful that our personality does not trump Christianity in our lives, right? So we've got to be very, so I would say, especially if you are of the, of the kind, if you are of the ilk, that you are just totally fine if you don't say hi to anyone. You especially are in danger of not meeting the requirements, the duties of this kind of love. Therefore, you, especially you, need to be taking stock of this. You need to be really intentionally guarding your heart against drifting in this. Because to some of you guys, you know, you're social butterflies. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, no problem. But to some of us, it's not that easy. And some of you, it's really hard to engage in a conversation where you've got to look somebody in the eye. And um, I have a friend like that. Uh, some of you guys know him, Mike McNamara. He's the most socially awkward person on earth. Also one of the most brilliant people I know in the world. I took him, he's an older brother, and I took him to a church where I thought he can go and fellowship. And he said he was 
amazed that within three minutes I was already talking to the pastor and a couple other people that were there. He said, are you kidding me? I wouldn't do that if I was there for a year. <laughs> Some people just, they're just not good at it. Doesn't matter. We do it because we know that this is, this is the love of God in us, flowing through us to one another. We know that this is what keeps the church going. This is what builds the church up. This is what comforts the church. And so we do it not always because it's easy, because guess what? In, in Christianity, nothing is easy. Everything sometimes feels like a fight, doesn't it? I mean, I was just today, you know, just Jonathan, I thought, man, that was like the cherry on top. It's like this person struggling, this person sick, illness, you know, got this, this happened. Sick again, news from afar, things are going. I mean, somebody pressed the wrong button in Hawaii. This is a tough world to live in. And we think that these things happen automatically dead wrong. You got to work at this. Okay, last virtue. You go back to chapter one. These are all connected to one personal pronoun. He says, We thanks God. We we thank God always for all of you, making mention of you in your prayers, constantly bearing in mind, and then the personal pronoun, your work of faith, and you can repeat that personal pronoun, your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. That's the way that the exegesis really works. Um, And what's interesting here is that now we can almost see a logical connection between all three phrases, right? Because in a sense, faith being the fountain, being the foundation of our love, and consequently, those who are willing to live in this loving way through hardships of life and with a commitment to the saints do that because we possess what Paul now calls the steadfastness of hope. In other words, we have an endurance just like love, just like faith. We have an endurance that flows out of our hope. We have a hope. And that hope produces in us a perseverance, an indomitable steadfastness of heart and soul. Our hope gives us endurance to to go through all the things that we need to go through in this life, in this pilgrimage. Ironically, and I say ironically because I reveal my personal uh, priority of the NIV translation. Ironically, the NIV has a really good translation here. Let me read it to you. He says the work, it says, the work produced by faith, the labor prompted by love, and the endurance inspired by hope. Now, of course, the words produced, prompted, inspired are not in the Greek text. But that is what Paul is talking about. He's saying that, that faith produced this work. He's saying that love prompted this labor of love for the brethren. And that their hope inspired this endurance. And that's exactly what hope is meant to do for us as we eagerly await the return of Christ. We're going to talk a lot about the second coming in this letter because, like I pointed out last week, it's in every single chapter. His coming, His coming, His coming, His coming. Um, yeah, so that, that's a big deal, you know. That's what our hope is meant to do. It's meant to make us long for the return. It's meant to make us patient as we wait for the return. It causes us to think eternally minded and therefore 
Our hope is a means of grace because it strengthens us, it vivifies us, it causes us to think heavenward, it makes our blessings look vast and big, it makes our trials seem small and insignificant. What does Paul say? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, he says, But light and momentary affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. As we look, at the things, as we look not at the things that are, uh, that are temporal, but at the things that are eternal, for the things that are, te- that are visible, or visible and invisible, because the things that are invisible are eternal, but the things that are visible are temporal, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in other words, we have an eternally minded mind. Uh, we're able to look past all of the visible, physical um, factors that come into our life. It could be as small as a headache that won't go away. It could be as big as losing someone that you love. It could be as big as losing a job that you love. I mean, that's what a truly Christian hope inspires is it allows us to overcome. Also, look at the phrase that is connected to this hope. This is interesting. The steadfastness of hope, watch this, in our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. Because he discriminates what kind of hope actually qualifies as hope. We can say this. Hope without Christ is hopelessness. It is not true hope. You know, hope is something that gets thrown around all over the place. You know, hope is a virtue that everyone longs for and that everybody uses in whatever way they see fit. But Christian hope is ultimate hope. Christian hope is eternal hope. Christian hope is eschatological hope. That is why it's true hope. Let me think about it. You can hope in this and hope in that and hope in this temporary situation or hope for this or hope for your children or hope for your marriage or hope for your finances or hope for the country or hope for the society or hope for this or hope for that. But in the end, if you don't have the hope of Christ, you will be eternally hopeless. I love the fact that he adds Jesus Christ because this is distinctly a Christian hope. And we have set our heart and our hope Upon Christ, all of our chips are on Him. He is the center and the substance of our hope. Our hope. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Just to see that this hope for the Apostle Paul, he's talking out of experience. This is not theoretical for him. He's talking about the fact that this hope held him together. Uh, it comforted him, Right? When he faced the hardest trials that he ever had to go through, he had Christian hope. And the result of that was that Paul came to the understanding that the people of hope give hope. Look at 2 Corinthians 1.6. You know this passage, it says, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. See, those that suffer can comfort the suffering. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are shares in our sufferings, so also are you shares in our comfort. We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction that came to us in Asia and that we were burdened excessively beyond strength. You ever feel like that? But how many of us feel like this? 
That we'd even despaired even of life. I tell you what, if I would have got the news that Jonathan got today, I think there would have been a real gut check. Ooh, am I ready? I mean, this is it? I mean, I wasn't ready for that. I mean, I'm old. How old am I? Oh, I'm too old. Jonathan is 27. I had a friend, Kevin Bundy, one minute, um, in the low post, backing him up to score a layup over him, playing basketball. Four months later, leukemia takes him. Gone. That quick. And never in the, in the world would I thought, my brother, whom I love to death, who I see all the time at church, who I embrace and joke around with and have fellowship, four months, that's it. That's all the time in the world I got with him, that's it. Oh, I get emotional just thinking about it. There he was laying in the hospital bed, and what did he have next to his, uh, his bed? He was, trying to, he was trying to keep a desire... Uh, uh, a wish that he always wanted to do, which was to learn Greek. So there was his Greek New Testament. There was mounts. There were his flashcards on his dying bed. He's trying so hard to learn Greek before he dies. Oh, man. No wonder so many people from the hospital went to his funeral. They'd never seen anything like that before. What? You're dying and you're sitting here doing flashcards? What else is he supposed to be doing? Watching Oprah? I mean, those stupid TVs they put in there. No, it's because he had hope. He had the same hope that Paul is talking about right here, that even though you have the sentence of death upon yourself, the reason why is so that you don't trust yourself, but that you trust God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. Where's your hope? If your hope is not set on Christ, it will not produce endurance. You'll get rattled. You'll get shaken. You'll be easily moved from your foundation. Your circumstances will easily rattle your soul, your walk. They will easily throw you into a cauldron of sin and temptation and backsliding and hardness of heart. Like the book of Hebrews says that we would not harden our heart through the deceitfulness of sin. Finally, I want to bring us one more time to the text in Thessalonians and show you there's a thorny theological exegetical issue here, and most pastors would probably just skip that. <laughs> and say, like, okay, we won't talk about that. <laughs> because in the commentaries, the commentaries just, <laughs> they're just divided on this issue. They don't want to, they, they, there's just not a monolithic view. And it's not, it's not a big deal, but it is, a, it is something we need to, tackle. And that is the last phrase. Did you see that? You might think I'm forgetting it. I'm not. He says, speaking of the steadfastness of their hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, there is one last prepositional phrase. In the presence of our God and Father. So here's a question I have for you, all of you theologically minded exegetical students of the Bible. To what does the prepositional phrase belong? Thank you, Robert. I, I don't think I would have had the right word, so thank you. Yeah, what does it belong to? What is it modifying? What is in the presence of, the, of our God and Father? Is it Jesus Christ that's in the presence of our God and Father? Certainly not. Most commentators rule that completely out because it doesn't have the kind of 
sort of uh, conjunction or some sort of connecting article or something to connect it to that. And so then the question becomes, what does it belong to? Does it belong to the endurance of the saints? So the endurance, the steadfast hope of the saints is in the presence of God, our Father, of our God and Father. Does it go back to the remembrance, the remembrance constantly bearing in mind in the presence of our God and Father? Does it go back to, all the way back to the first verb? We give thanks to God always for you in the presence of our God and Father. You know, the Apostle Paul, he is known for these massive parenthetical statements where he can begin a verb, put three verses, and then resume a thought three verses later. He's known to do this. You see what keeps me up at night. I didn't figure out. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) That's a tough one. My suspicion is is that it goes back to the participle bearing in mind, uh, which would be uh, what's known as an explanatory clause of his prayer. That his prayer of thanksgiving was in the presence of our God and Father. And if that is correct, then my last point of my sermon is valid, and that is that election also produces intercession. This is a big one, because this guards us against hyper-Calvinism. This, this, heart, this guards us against approaching the sovereignty of God from a position of a cold determinism or a fatalism. No, 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 nothing of the sort. The one who taught most on sovereignty, election, predestination, foreknowledge, Paul, was also the one that did not hesitate to talk about the necessity of interceding and praying for the elect. (laughs) Remarkable. No way would Paul ever conclude, well, you're elect, and so therefore, I have no need to really pray for you. You're going to make it in the end. No, 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 no. That kind of fatalistic understanding of sovereignty is totally foreign to the Bible. The Apostle Paul understood that God ordains the end and the means to the end as well. And so the means to the end is the prayers of the saints which are precious to God. Precious to God so that they are before the throne, the altar of God in heaven. Are the, the aroma of the saints are ascending into the nostrils of God. They are a soothing aroma to Him. He uses our prayers to accomplish His purpose. But even then, our prayers are ordained by the hand of a sovereign God. Once again, the NIV, ironically, gets it correct, I believe. Let me read to you the whole verse from the NIV Bible. It says, We continually remember before God and before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in the Greek text, word order is not king. Context is king. Yeah. I mean, be thankful we don't speak Greek. Well, I guess if we spoke Greek, we wouldn't have a problem. But that's the way the Greek language works. You can have a word over here, and it really begins the sentence. You know, so don't you guys want to go out and learn Greek? We have a lot of work to do uh, in this book, but I am confident that uh, as we go through this, we're going to really be enriched in our walk. And I just encourage us 
to have a view of the sovereignty of God. As a Reformed church, we need this attitude that Paul had. We need to see, we need to be completely unflinching of the reality of the sovereignty of God, the reality of election and predestination and foreknowledge. We cannot flinch on those points. But in light of all of that, we also have to have the same zeal as Paul, the same heart as Paul, that we don't hesitate to understand that our prayers, our worship, our service, our labor, our love, all of these things are meaningful beneath the sovereignty of God and that it pleases our sovereign God. Well, Lord willing, next week we're also going to look at the place of preaching and sovereignty. Let's pray. Father, today we... We acknowledge our need, Lord, for greater love to flow from us. We acknowledge today that our faith is not just to be professed, but it is to be manifested. That our faith is to be lived out and worked out in fear and trembling. And that our lives are to be characterized by good fruit, good works. And so, God, would you do the, would you do the, the conviction in our hearts where that's needed. Lord, would you bring in correction, rebuke, exhortation, admonition? Would you lift us up so that we do not get condemned when we get introspective? Because that's not the point. We want to be pleasing to you, O Lord, as Paul says, always, whether in the body or absent from the body, we seek to be pleasing to you in all respects. And so, Father, we pray that as we increase in love, that we would increase in faith, that we would increase in our hope. And as we do that, that that would redound to your glory. You ordained all of these graces in our life, and all of these graces are to be used for the glory of God. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.